Hi, I'm Jason Bradford. I'm Rob Dietz. And I'm Asher Miller. Welcome to Crazy Town. Yeah, buddy, you think you live in Springfield, but actually, we all live here. The topic of today's episode is the myth of progress, and stay tuned for an interview with Tyson Yunkaporta. Hey, Jason Asher, you all know that I am a non-profiteer, critiquer of the world, and uh, part-time podcast host, right? Uh, okay. I mean, I, that kind of describes you guys, too. <laughs> I, I, we know that's the best job in the world, but I've kind of had this fantasy my life of, of taking a slightly different job, which okay. is game show host. You would have been an awesome game show host. But, Maybe well, you, you know, be- there's an opening at Jeopardy. Wow. Let's not let's not get off to a morbid start. That Alex was pretty. Trebek. That was pretty unkind of me. I know. Yeah. Alex Trebek, I, such a hero. Well, so the reason I, I have this thing about game show hosts is I don't think you have to work that much. I think you get right. paid pretty well. Yeah, and you get to use that game show host voice. Uh, so I, okay. I hope the listeners stick with us because this, this 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 uh, interloping. <laughs> Period of the show will 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 end at some point. Yes, well, maybe we we'll could have Melody cut this part. Out. Right. So uh, I got a, a little game show for you guys. Are okay. you ready? Okay. It's time to play. Are we making progress with your host Rob Dietz? <laughs> okay. We've got Jason Bradford and a Cher Miller squared off. Are you re- okay? I'm going to stop the voice now because this you. will just send people away. But. I do have some questions for you guys for, for the game show. You okay. ready? You ready? Sure. Okay. okay. Here's the first one. What share of all plastic waste in the world ends up in the oceans? Ooh. A, I'm going to give you oh, choices. Oh, we have multiple yes. choice. Okay. A. I was going to say 112%. <laughs> right, right. A, 6%. B, around 36%. C, more than 66%. Oh. Well, considering. Oh, that's an interesting one. Considering how much of the globe is ocean, you think it'd be high. Yeah, but we do have landfills. Where wow, we're trying. cerebral. Uh, yeah, you know, I got to put the time limit on. I this. wonder if a lot of it has to do with fishing and stuff like that. And so maybe there's actually. A, I'm going to go with the high end too. I'm going to go with B. Just You're to going just B, to differentiate. Per, you in high end, yeah. Jason. So the answer is A. Less than six percent. Crap. I'm so bad at this. We're such 86% of people get that question wrong. Okay. Okay. I I feel better. Let's move on. Let's move to the next question. How many people in the world have access to safe drinking water in their home or close by? Four people. (laughs) (laughs) Yes. (laughs) Three of them are right here. Okay. No, I don't have safe drinking water. I've been uh, getting it out of the gutter. So A, around 30%, B, around 50%, or C, around 70%. I'm going to go low because I went high last time and I was wrong. 30%. I'm going to go B again. This is what I do. This is how I yeah. barely pass yeah. class. I just did B across so the So you're board. both wrong again. It's 70%. Oh, no. <laughs> what he's pointing out well, here is that we are way too pessimistic. How much money have Jason. I made yet? Uh, yeah, you're actually paying now. <laughs> okay. <laughs> uh, okay, last question for now, all okay. right? In, yeah. in 1990, 58% of the world's population lived in low-income countries. What is the share today? A, around 9%, B, around 37%, C, 
C, around 67%. Well, now that I know what this is about, I'm going with 9%. There's, there's no way it went all the way down that far. The, an- the answer is 9%. I win. Wow. I beat a share. Jason, Jason is now that, well, you missed two, got one. So you only owe me a little just, bit of cash. You just went with the opposite of your instinct, yes, didn't you? Okay. I did. So, You're doing a George Costanza do the opposite. Yeah, so that's the, the end of the show usually. But Yeah. The, these questions, I stole them off of the website gapminder.org, which is a, a nonprofit that is trying to dispel myths by using data, I guess, oh. or, or, or kind of show people that, hey, you're probably not right about a lot of these these uh, these these questions about what's going on in the world. Okay. And I think you guys kind of bore that out pretty yeah, well. I, yeah, I feel um, better now. But the, their whole thing is kind of like, hey, everybody, uh, let's let's be kind of optimistic. We are making good progress on things like the UN Development Goals, and we're we're moving in in this uh, upward trajectory in society. And that's what I wanted to talk about with you guys today. Is we're this, a tough audience, but let's just yes, go for it. It's this idea of progress and. Are we actually achieving progress, or is it a myth? And if it's a myth, what is that doing to us? Hmm. I'm totally game for this conversation, but before we talk about all that, maybe can we just talk about where this idea of progress like even comes from? Well, you know what? It's interesting is to think about stories of like the original sin, the Garden of Eden, and, and eating that apple. How could she? And like Pandora's box. And so if you go like way back in in the good old days we actually there was like <laughs> the a good old days. yeah there was a fall from grace right and and so i i don't think this is a this has not been an idea that has been out there in human societies forever right so actually that maybe for most of our history we didn't actually believe in progress correct i don't we, think we did we believed in a fall maybe yes. if anything right yes like this is the worst of all possible worlds. It's our right, fault, right? Right. And almost like the life we're fault. living, the, the life we're living is all about suffering, and you got to get through that so you can actually get back to the promised land, right? Right. Right. Yeah, heaven, whatever it is. Yeah, I think from from my reading and understanding of these things, I think things really changed in the Enlightenment. Mm. You know, um, when we, and by we, I, I should say probably Western civilization, mm-hmm. right? We went through this cultural. You know, educational transformation where we felt like it was a movement towards rationalism in a sense that we could know the world and know the universe and understand it, and we started applying science to to the world and to kind of improve people's lot. Yeah, that's when universities started proliferating, and you got all these right. philosophers and famous inventors and. Yeah, and so you see this kind of in the 18th century and between the 17th and 19th century, this kind of uh, this increase in in knowledge, increase in democratic institutions, more rights for more people. The early famous scientists, the right. Galileos and the Newtons and the Copernici. Yeah. Right. Right. Yeah. Okay, yeah. Can we just not overly rosify this, though? Is that a word, to rosify? Because you, you got, like, colonialism really taking off at this time as well. Of course. And I think when we talk about this idea of progress, we should be really clear about uh, whose progress we're talking about. Right. You know? And I think, so in this context, maybe we should just be clear we're talking about in the Western tradition or Western culture at sort of advanced economies. Because in fact you can argue that maybe our our quote unquote progress came at the cost of 
many others. Oh yeah. You know, yeah. The but the witches' union was in favor of this because the burning <laughs> the burning of witches plummeted after the Enlightenment. Right. So that that was a good thing. They were in favor of it. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, okay. <laughs> I, now I'm thinking of burning stuff uh, and, and witches, but that actually raises the point of. At the same time, you had the burning of fossil fuels, which mm. really supercharged all of this. You have a, you have enlightenment. You have all these ideas coming together, and and you have institutions that are pushing you towards some some idea of progress. But then then we suddenly had the means to do all kinds of stuff because we had this huge energy surplus that came from starting with with coal and then on to oil. Yeah, it's like I think with enlightenment, you had it wasn't just more education, more knowledge, you know, the the advancement of science. It was applying it to the world and feeling like you could actually improve the lot of people. And then you add, you basically just take a whole bunch of fossil hydrocarbons and pour it on there, right? right? Yeah. And just light the fucker on fire. And right. <laughs> yeah, here we are. So, so roughly we've had like two to 300 years of this happening where our population is going way up, our life expectancy is rising, our material goods are expanding exponentially, we have this huge footprint, all this consumption, all this advancing technology, and it seems like that's, that's now the story, isn't it? I think we have this expectation these trends are going to continue, right? Okay. So let's then let's talk about then. I think let's get clear on what we mean by or what we think our culture means by by progress, right? It's, so, for example, it's easy to measure progress in say athletics feats. Like you can you go to the gym, you train. You, your your bench press is up to what now, Rob? Well, I mean, this is the problem. When I go to the gym and then I injure my shoulder, and now I just can't even lift anything. So okay, uh, so you you're know. a bad example. Yeah. Okay. It's kind of like my salary trajectory over my career. It's been it's been degressing, uh, ungressing, whatever the opposite of progressing is. I'm sorry. I'm so, well, we'll, is we'll this talk a to subtle the, way of asking we'll talk for to the like board a raise this. or something. Okay. Yeah. Mm-hmm. But anyway, I guess track like track records seem to get broken all the time, right? So like yeah. athletes are getting stronger and faster or whatever. So there's metrics involved. So what what are the sort of the progress metrics that that we pay attention to? Well, when I was thinking about uh, progress and the myth of progress, I started looking for scholars who have done some work on this. And I happened across this guy named Theodore Abel. He was a professor at, at Hunter College. And actually, Asher, you would, you would kind of like this. I know in a former career, you were collecting the stories of people who had survived the, the Nazi regime, right? Yeah. And uh, Abel actually had the biggest collection of first-person accounts as the Nazis were coming to power of people who joined uh, the regime and, and people who are Nazi sympathizers. Oh, interesting. You said during the rise yeah, of yeah, the Nazis? Yeah, before so World not after War the war. He, he was, I think he wow. was recognizing what was going on and started- That's really I got to find out why people are succumbing to this bullshit. Oh, wow. Uh, really interesting guy. But he, he had this kind of the, uh, an article about- progress is it real is it a myth and he 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 had this idea of of progress as the human condition both materially and spiritually and i think that's the important part is improving over time on some ascending scale and we might have some tragic reversals or setbacks but overall for all the people over the long run we're on this upward trajectory 
And the article that he wrote was kind of interesting because, again, you're talking about what would we measure our progress mm-hmm. by? And he sort of he had this really neat visualization. If you've ever been to the Air and Space Museum in Washington D.C., you can look at the the early plane, the Wright brothers replica made out of balsa wood and spit or whatever <laughs> right. you know whatever they put that thing together with. <laughs> I know some history buffs are gonna gonna be uh, fixing our our errors here, but you know you go on up to space capsules and and you can see the this very visual advancement yeah. of of the technology of of it really air and tells space a story, plane. doesn't it? Yeah. yeah, yeah, of course. Part of that story is that we then figured out how to use those things as big weapons, right? And, you know, you've got to bomb other nuclear people. missiles yeah. and yeah, all that. But yeah, you're you're exactly right. Like his definition is, it sounds nice, like this idea of of ascending spiritually and materially, but. How do you, you know, how do you actually measure something like that? And I think our society does it in ways that maybe, maybe don't really fit his definition. Yeah, I, I think we've landed kind of at a macro level. When you th- think about, for example, the economy, right? We have certain things that we look at as indicators, and we use those as as a means of gauging our progress, right? So yeah. we have GDP, you know, and GDP growth. Is the economy growing? We have the stock market. There's an obsession. Mm-hmm. Every time you listen to the news, every day they have to give you a report on on if the market is up or down and by how many that. points. Oh you know, um, I know. I always that's the problem with systems thinking. They say uh, some company's up. You start thinking about what does that mean? How many forests are being <laughs> felled, or how many right, exactly. how many mines are being dug, or how many people are being exploited? It's a terrible place to live. <laughs> Because those things are not progress, so we need to focus on the, okay, on the numbers that are. Okay, let's get back to progress. Right? Stop it. <laughs> so we've got that on the economy. You know, we, we look at life expectancy, and life expectancy is, has been up for, for generations. The wealth of people, household wealth, incomes, you know, what average incomes are. Or the game show questions. Kind of right. Well, that, the yeah. game show questions and what you're talking about GDP, that's the, the macro. And then yeah. I think you were getting to the micro economic idea of yeah. your personal wealth or or how many awesome gadgets you have or or what you're able to buy. Well, think about I mean what do people see so, so much? They see commercials, right? And the commercials are all about selling a, a new version of a product. Get this new phone because it's got three cameras with 8 billion pixels or whatever. The last one piece of shit sucks it only had two cameras on it i just figured you know? out i can embed gifts and text messages oh oh i just figured that wow, out yeah. you're uh you're still stuck uh, in the last that century, was incredible I'm, I, I'm, all, I'm all over this i now. just got a new phone that has a cup holder <laughs> <laughs> so, so i i do have to say though to me when you talk about gdp and when when you talk about the proliferation of gadgets and stuff i mean we've all done some studying in ecological economics and it, that just feels like such a cheap way of measuring or defining progress but at the same time it's really popular and it can even be kind of compelling like you can get lost in that world right well I you mean, sold me on the game show questions so <laughs> that's good i i i I'm, i may be leaving here to take that career uh <laughs> take that although with that voice, they're going to fire no, me instantly. You, sorry, you won't make it. You okay, well, speaking of game show hosts, uh, <laughs> I want to tell you guys about one of my favorite TED Talks of all time, okay? Mm. This was one of the original ones. I th- It might have been the first one I ever saw. It's oh. going back 15 years. 
2006. It was by a guy named Hans Rosling, who was... Oh, yeah. Do you know him? I know that guy. Yeah. I don't. Well, so he was this... I don't know. He was a professor, super likable, and he was doing this analysis, basically like the questions I asked you. That Gapminder organization came out of his work in, oh. in this talk, actually. So what he did is he he was like a data visualization guy. Mm. And he made this graph where he put the fertility rate on the x-axis, so how many children per per woman, and then he put uh life expectancy on the y-axis. And 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 then he plotted all the countries of the world on this graph as a circle. And so you're you're kind of thinking like the wealthy countries have uh, smaller families and higher life expectancies, and the poorer countries have, you know, the opposite, right? And so you see all these countries plotted on the graph. And the cool thing he could do with this software is he could animate it. So he could start it running in say 1960, mm. and then have it in his video. He actually goes from 1962 to 2003. Okay, so you see countries like China. Drifting from the the bottom right of this graph, kind of the the sort of bad area, and they drift. It drifts up to the the upper left. Right. And <laughs> the best part about this, I was saying with a game show host, is Hans Rosling does it like a sportscaster who's taken a handful of amphetamines. <laughs> I mean, it's so good. He's like, and here you see China moving up to the left. Here they are. They're going up. And da, 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 da. Okay, I'll watch it after our show. Yeah, and he even does an instant replay. Like, <laughs> <laughs> Let's look at that again. Yeah. It's so good. Yeah, China breaks free. It's so good. And and you can see he's selected these data points to show it. And basically his story is, you think that uh, humanity is on some dismal path when look at the progress. And I can show you with this animation. It's, it, like I said, very compelling. I was a, I was a fan of his when I saw that. I you know I'm not sure I believed everything, but but I was on board. Mm. Well, I think you know since then other thinkers have like these new optimists they call them right have come out like Steven Pinker. Yeah, Steve Pinker. He's yeah. quite popular. Big fan, are you a share? <laughs> and, <laughs> yeah. And and this has been a very influential movement. So like Bill Gates just has a book now, you know, uh, Enlightenment Now. No, that's Pinker's book. Oh, that's Pinker. Bill Gates said that's his favorite book, Enlightenment Now, Bill Pinker's book. So I think this this thinking has been extremely influential. And I agree. It's it's intoxicating. I love the I love I love your your description of him, and I want to watch it. <laughs> I really do. Well, like, would you rather live, like I was talking about a few minutes ago of trying to think about, oh, stock prices are going up. That means the world's being plundered. Or would you rather live yeah. in, hey, it's all getting better. Woohoo. Yeah. And Pinker had this big thing about violence is on the decline, right? right. Um, so, yeah. I, I Yeah. It's like uh, poo-pooing any concern or, or pessimism or or contrarian thinking about how everyone's lot is getting better by by putting out some of the, this this data and it's i mean i think there are a couple of things here about what's compelling about it one is i think we do want to to believe in the in the positive mm-hmm. certainly when we're thinking about the future and we have kids we want to imagine that their future is going to be better right yeah the other thing though is that it does correlate a lot with people's experience we've had generations now in certain conditions again i'm i I think we got to be clear that 
we're talking about people in advanced economies for the most part and not or, equitably or distributed. High consuming economies. Yeah, quote unquote, like I should have them. said quote unquote advanced economies who for, for generations now, their lot has generally improved if we're following these certain indicators of life expectancy and mm-hmm. yeah. material wealth and those kinds of things. But it's, it's almost like a religion that you have to hold on to with desperation. Yes, we have people like Pinker peddling this idea, but I think we also have people who are grasping at this idea of progress and all this going to continue out of desperation. Like it reminds me of, of and we may have talked about this before on this podcast, I don't recall, but Jeff Bezos, you know, the Amazon right. billionaire who... Yeah. Poor guy. He he just oh. lost his number one place standing as the world's richest man. Oh, must eat at him to Elon Musk, which yeah. is that's got to really you know make him feel can, like he's not progressing. Can we set up a, an MMA mixed martial arts bout between those two guys? With <laughs> I think you're gonna say let's set up a GoFundMe page for him so he can get back to number one. Yeah, even even better. But <laughs> but you know he uh, you know he started this uh, this new space exploration effort, right? Yeah, he's also behind Elon Musk on that too. This has got to piss him off, right? right? Well, he's like a Johnny Come Lately to yeah. that party. The come blue, on, what Blue Origin? Yeah, and there's this just amazing presentation when yes. he launched the company. He gave this incredible presentation that basically Bezos is talking about the role of energy, how energy and the growth, exponential growth of energy, has led to all of these things. The critical role that energy plays, all the advancements that have come. From energy, and he's talking about the fact that we might be faced with a situation of running out. You right, know, we've got diminishing returns on efficiency. This guy's like speaking he knows our it all. language. He knows it all. Speaking our yeah, language. Yeah, share was would sit in there watching that, going, "Yeah, yeah, speak the gospel. Come on, Bezos, like, oh you're my getting God. it right. The world's now richest man is say? with us here." And then he's like, "Oh no, we're gonna hit, we're hitting these limits." Limits efficiency. We're gonna we're gonna have you know run we're gonna run out of energy yeah. resources. That might mean that we have to ration, that we can't continue to progress. That's fucking unacceptable. Right. We gotta go harvest the moon <laughs> and go to space. <laughs> yeah. Right. Like yeah. like the idea that we're gonna go harvest the moon and have like a trillion people living in, in orbit around yeah. the Earth is more plausible to him. Than the idea that we could ever stop progressing. Yes, right? that's it's, a, it's the religion. It's that religion of progress. Well, he probably saw Total Recall, where the Martians have already come and planted a, a you know a whole atmosphere creation system on on the moon. So they all you got to do is for us. you just got to hit the button and boom. Or maybe he was listening to Alex Jones. Alex Jones was talking about how, us harvesting kids on the surface of the moon. So <laughs> there's been a lot of you know work done to kind of lay the. What are they going to eat? Green cheese? I mean, come on. Space Force is going after that. Yeah. Well, uh. okay. So uh, with that, I think we can move into a little bit of a critique of of. Of this kind of notion of progress and this, I see no, on. I see no critique. <laughs> yep, done. We're out. We, we've just joined the Bezos. You convinced platform. me with your uh, with your Gapminder test. Yeah. Well, I, I do want to raise the point that these guys bring data. Yeah. I mean, there's sure. there's something to their story. There's there's it's, to me, it's a yes and yes that and that's where the <laughs> the critique starts. Or there's to, a yes but, but a big okay, but. I'm trying to be nice. <laughs> yeah, that's where the critique starts to come in. And I found a book by this guy named Rodrigo Aguilera, and the book is called The Glass Half Empty, subtitled Debunking the Myth of Progress in the 21st Century. Is he outselling Pinker? uh, (laughs) I'm afraid he is probably not, but he 
He, he, he just goes after these guys. This is great. I, I got I to gotta quote him because he, he says, what does it mean to believe in progress? And he's talking about the new optimists yeah. uh, specifically. He says, it means to present statistical facts that demonstrate the material and moral improvement of humanity, imply that those who deny or question progress have no rational claim for doing so, and attribute this progress to the causes that fit your beliefs. <laughs> yeah. So it's basically saying whatever we got, the the status quo, we got to defend that because if we if we start eating into that, no more progress for humankind. And so, you know, that's where you get these ideas like we got to keep our uh, laissez-faire economic system or we got to we got to keep the exact same constitutional arrangements we've got. Mm-hmm. Now, I will say that description doesn't just apply to these new optimists. I think a lot of people present statistical facts that that reinforce. We we've, we've talked before about yeah about you know confirmation bias and things like that. So it might not be unique to these guys, but you know there there's definitely a cherry picking going on there. Yeah, yeah. He actually Aguilero looked at one example relating to global poverty rate. And and basically said the the improvement that you see was all based on what happened in China. So you, you can kind of get this skewing of the statistics. You think the whole world is coming out of poverty, but it's really China lifted mm. so many people out. Another idea, the cherry picking, I wanted to kind of come full circle on that Gapminder quiz because there was there's all those questions like the ones I was asking you guys, but then I found one question in there that said what happened to the total amount of raw materials used across the world annually since the year 2000? And they gave the A, it stayed about the same, B, increased by about 35%, or C, increased about 70%. And the answer is increased 70%. Yeah, I would have gotten that one right. right. (laughs) And their explanation, you know, I I was telling you how many people got your answers wrong. This one, they said 70% of people answer this question incorrectly. Wow. They don't realize how fast we're eating into nature. So the gap miner is admitting that and that. But it's like the one- Was that part of the TEDx talk? It's the The one- Yeah, that's the thing. It's like the one- I was surprised to see that question. It's the one question that really- goes at kind of an explanation for why all these other numbers yes. are, are going up. Oh, well, I'm glad they actually presented that. It gives me some hope. Oh, it was it was <laughs> like a, a, a one tiny little piece in a sea of questions that are made to make you think that, uh, right. uh, don't worry, be happy, uh, well, to quote it, Bobby McFerrin. And that's the thing, is that we, we are consuming up nature. We are pushing forward all of these consequences for this exponential growth and acceleration of all these things that have led to these certain areas of progress that we not only glorify, but we are absolutely tethered to, right? Yeah. And, and there's no sense of a reckoning of that and a belief that it has to continue, right? It cannot stop. Well, even in the material progress, think about how we've used debt to achieve that. Right. And what is debt? That's a that's a borrowing from the future, mm-hmm. meaning people in the future have to pay this back. So how do you expect progress to continue when you're pushing all of this uh, on the future? But what you're describing is is why progress has to continue, right? Because it can't get paid back unless progress does continue. Yeah, the Ponzi scheme of it all. There's a recent paper that came out that scientists weighed up all of the built 
Im- environment, right? They yeah. call it the built environment. And it weighed more than the living world. God, where did point. they get the scales to do that? I know. To- exactly. It was very difficult. Uh, a lot, yeah, a lot of logistical problems. <laughs> that scale took a lot of resources right. to build. Yeah. And what's, what's, of course, is, 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 is also ironic is that if you look at the lifespan of this built environment we have, and in places like the US or any of the advanced economies, you realize, oh, that concrete infrastructure doesn't last forever. Yeah. The heaviest stuff we build has actually got a lifespan where it decays. We think of this stuff as permanent, but the reason we're decommissioning a lot of dams right now is because they were built in the 20s and 30s, and now they're dangerous. Yeah. So yeah, how do we replace that stuff? We think it's done, but it's not. It's this, it's this treadmill you get on. I think it's an important point here that in the critiques of these new optimists, right? a lot of the critique is, I think you touched on this a little bit, Rob, is that in a sense, these new optimists are justifying kind of neoliberal economic mm-hmm. policy, yeah. right? And the people that are questioning that, questioning the stats, like this this one around global poverty levels being distorted by China, for example, yeah. are doing so because they see that it's masking a, um, a more complex story, mm-hmm. right? And that maybe these policies are not benefiting everyone equally. We know that they're not, right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. But Still in this conversation, what's missing is this underlying fundamentals of biophysics and whether or not this could even be supported. Even if right. it was more equitably distributed, even if there was an economic system that wasn't this neoliberal system, it was one that was much more focused on equal distribution of sure. the benefits. Now the same if problem. it's still bought into this idea of progress coming from us borrowing from the future and destroying natural capital mm-hmm. and running down non-renewable resources it can't continue yeah. some yeah. some some point the music has got to stop and and i also think that part of what we some of us recognize that are maybe the art, artistic types right who are not necessarily going to be as sensitive to these high flutin statistics but who are reflecting on lived experience so yeah. you know that joni mitchell song Pave paradise and put up a parking lot, for example. Yeah. What is that song? Big yellow taxi. Yeah, it's like it's like it's got a really weird name, yeah. but that's the line that everyone remembers, yeah. right? Yeah. Or oh, the Pretenders had a song called "Back to the Ohio." My love pretty countryside yeah, uh, was paved down the middle by a government that had no pride. The farms of Ohio have been replaced by shopping malls. Blah 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 blah. Another one that really hits me is this John Prine song because oh. I've been to the forests in the southeastern US and they're they're like, you know, the North American version of of the of the tropical forest. They're not quite as diverse, but if you're going to get close to feeling what it's like to feel the diversity of the tropics, that's the closest you can get yeah. in North America. Well, that's some incredible. of them like in the Great Smokies, you have the diversity of of fish. amphibians mm-hmm. and freshwater fish yeah. and mussels and the world the, world like, world yeah. diversity highest in the world, right? Yeah. So so anyway, why don't we play that song about Paradise? Like, Paradise. So, yeah, I yeah. love that. that. That was one of the first ones I learned on guitar ever. Oh, wow. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Can you? I, I can get that clip. Then the coal company came with the world's largest shovel, and they tortured the timber and stripped all the land. Well, they dug for their coal till the land was forsaken, and they rode it all down as the progress of man. And Daddy, won't you take me back to Muhlenberg County, down by the Green River, where paradise lay. 
Yeah, he nails it, right? I mean, all these artists that we talked about nailed it, and many more. Tracy Chapman talks about this stuff too, a lot yeah. of her work, or Jack Johnson. So I think they've touched upon something that these new optimists haven't touched upon. Yeah, and something that 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 doesn't ever get mentioned is this repetition of problem generation. Mm. So if progress is about solving problems, we've done a lot of that. We've gone a long way and, you know, think about medical solutions, vaccines, uh, uh, having access to food. But all along the way, we create new problems with all these solutions. To me, the obvious one is agriculture. Uh, Mm -hmm. Jason, you could probably chime in on this, but we invented synthetic fertilizers to increase crop yields. Of course, we got the pollution problems associated with that, which are by no means trivial. They're legendary. Yeah, I mean, the dead zones in the, in the bays and gulfs the, around the, the world. Groundwater in Iowa right now or right. whatever. It's just awful. But that, I, I don't even think that's the real issue. Is It's that, okay, we, we, now we have a population that's so expanded that we're starting to get up against the limits of the, the food productivity we can achieve with synthetic fertilizers. So. Right. What's the next thing we got to do to solve the problem? I'll ask Jeff Bezos. <laughs> no, that's right. why we have to get off this planet. <laughs> I don't know what we're going to eat, but yeah. we'll figure that out later. Yeah. I think the, the, the thing that's hard for us to imagine who's grown up in this culture is what was lost and what we haven't experienced. So I mentioned sort of like the John Prine about you know, the Appalachians, and, but um, I was struck by this Paul Kingsnorth interview and we'll put it in the show notes, where he talks about meditating you know, in one spot for four days in a forest, and eventually the trees and him start talking. <laughs> and, now, wait, know, wait a sec. Was this because he got dehydrated and messed up, or was he actually uh, having some kind of enlightenment here? I, he, he portrays it as enlightenment, right? Was he, Michael Pollan with him? And, right, uh, right. Yeah, he might have nibbled on some shrooms while I was sitting there. I don't know. He, he would only eat what was within reach of his, uh, right. his hands while he was there. But I guess his point was, when you grow up separated from nature— you don't know what it's like. You can't know what it's like to grow up embedded in part of nature. And that there is such an incredible experience that happens when you, when you connect that way. And he says, nobody knows this who, who is in the world that I've grown up in. Like, none, of us are from, none of us understand this. And I think about if you were to go to, say, some indigenous tribe somewhere and try to like, uh, tell me what your, what your life is like and what your feelings are. It's like, how would they even communicate that to you if it's so different in the fact like, well, the world is alive. You know, I talk to the, I talk to the forest. I talk to the animals. They're part of it. And so we've completely lost. Yeah. See, our <laughs> culture talking to animals, you, you have to talk about the movie Beastmaster from, any the, Disney uh, from film. the early any 80s. Any Disney film. <laughs> <laughs> or, or Dr. Doolittle. Yeah. Right. Yeah. That's, that's what ta- talking to animals is about in, in this uh, yeah. culture we of make, progress. We make fun of it, right? <laughs> so yeah, I think that so much has been lost because we've separated ourselves. And we've been able to do that because of all the fossil fuels and all the quote-unquote technology. And we've created these virtual worlds separate from the real world. And that is that is just heartbreaking. To yeah. Me. Well, and I think you know we're this whole season is about hidden drivers. I think we you're you're hinting at another one that we might have to hit uh, regarding our our relationship with nature. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So bringing it back to this hidden driver, you brought this up, Rob, to talk about the myth of progress and 
the role that it's played as a hidden driver of what's brought us to Crazy Town. And I think that, to me, it's it's actually profoundly important, you know, the more I think about it, because this idea of progress, you, when you were talking, Jason, about kind of speaking to people in, in, in indigenous societies about their relationship with nature and just the difficulty of being able to communicate that with the language that we have, because they're so embedded in it, we are embedded in this myth of progress. Mm-hmm. It is kind of, it's like the water that we swim in, we don't even recognize it. And, right. and, and to me, it's, it's particularly dangerous because we even see it with the people that we know who recognize that we do have uh, an environmental crisis, right? Yeah. People who, who recognize the existential threat of, of climate change. Yeah, and and these other issues, uh, social, economic, racial justice issues, all of these, you know, major challenges that we have. There are people that are not ascribers to this sort of new optimist oh. worldview, but they still, I think, so much are, and it's understandable because it's so deeply, oh yeah, a part of our culture that that the future has to be better. Things are going to progress, and they're going to progress in a certain way. So when it comes to thinking about tackling the climate crisis, yeah, a lot of that is we're going to use technological progress to solve this problem, yes. right? And and they all get back to what you said of like uh, our solutions create new problems, right? Right. And and yeah, like but I mean, we ha- the- but the fact is that we have to do that. Like sometimes it's about well, we can't sell this unless we sell it as green right. jobs. That's right. Or we can't sell this unless we sell it as. It's going to be good for economy. It's going to be cheaper, Keep whatever. We can't sell it. But I actually think a lot of people actually are not as badly as Jeff Bezos, but are also locked into this idea that the future has to be better in these particular ways, yeah. right? Mm-hmm. That's why Greta Thunberg is so compelling to me as a, a character on this world stage, because she just comes right out and says, all you can talk about is fantasies of green growth and yes. you're supposed to be the adults in the room well right. fuck you guys right. we, we children are gonna have to deal with it i mean she's not nearly as uh, coarse or vulgar yes. as i am yes. but uh, much more she's yeah. much more eloquent and, than you. and i also think that th- th- there's another piece to that which is that idea of progress and the need to feel like we have to have progress really limits the options that we present to ourselves for how do we we address these issues but the other thing that it's doing particularly because of the things that we are using as indicators of progress, many people are being left behind. And we see here a great anger and resentment Mm -hmm. because the story of progress is so ingrained that if people's actual well-being is not materially progressing, I think we've stalled out for a lot of people, just even on those merits, that they're angry and they don't have another story. I don't don't know if it was Pinker, but I I remember in researching this, there was one of these new optimists who was doing a a book talk in some Midwestern town in the US, and the people kind of weren't having it right. because they were not feeling, you know, right. he, he's giving these big macroeconomic data indicators of progress. And they're like, well, pretty much sucks around here. Yeah. We're all addicted to yeah. heroin. Yeah. Right, and right. Here in Ohio. No jobs and <laughs> right. Uh, right. everything kind of sucks. So right. uh, take that in progress and stick it up your ass. <laughs> right. 
<laughs> I know. I, that's right. You're right. Like if that's the dominant story and we're all supposed to be living it, what happens when you're not? Then you start going down uh, QAnon and storming the Capitol or whatever. Right. It's got to be somebody's fault. There's right. got to be a reason why this is not happening rather yeah. than saying, you know what? Maybe this whole idea of progress is something that we have to question, which is a really tough thing to do. I mean, do we want to think that our own children are, you know, their lives are going to be worse than ours? Right. You know, that, shorter, like, more, more, more risky. difficult. Yeah, yeah, more I risky mean, well, I, they can't be worse than ours. I mean, come on, <laughs> let's get real here. <laughs> it's a really, really hard thing on a yeah. personal level to do. And it's, I think, a really hard thing to do kind of on an aggregate level. It's, it's, what politician is going to stand up and promise that the future is going to be worse than the present? <laughs> right. Well, you know? yeah, we kind of had the example of, of Carter, not that he was promoting that, but of, of him sort of being cautious about energy and the environment. And then you got a guy like Reagan coming in just saying, uh, beacon on a hill, uh, morning in America, blah, blah. You know, like people love that kind of messaging. It's, it's, what, they, it's it- what they want to hear. And thinking about it back to like the Enlightenment thinkers, part of I think what the Enlightenment was about, or one of the maybe the outcomes of the Enlightenment was the secularization. Mm-hmm. That we did have kind of a dominant story before that was the fall from the Garden of Eden, the fall from grace of God or whatever, and that this might be a difficult life, but we we suffer through it and then we get our reward in heaven later. Mm-hmm. And the Enlightenment and one of the byproducts of that in education and feeling like we can understand the natural world and, and have some some control over it allowed people to let go of that story. Yeah. But in both of these stories, the story I think of of we fell from from this, you know, idyllic golden golden age, or we're gonna continue to progress, everything is gonna continue to get better and better and better and better. In a sense is like lets us off the hook. Oh right. You know, it's like right. yeah, you don't have to do uh, anything. It's other there's nothing that could be done. It all sucks. Right. You know what I mean? You wait till the, your next life. Or the technocrats and scientists are figuring it exactly. out for you. you just go along and it's a right. cop out. That's the best you can do. Just go work for what what'd you call it? Space penis or whatever <laughs> yeah. Jeff Bezos' yeah. company is. Yes, it is a space uh, penis. <laughs> like that's that's contributing, right? That's that's the right. way to solve you know yeah, it's it you're right, lets you off the hook. And then I guess my my last thought about this is that we need to think about both doing away with the story of progress and also how we define progress. Okay, well, I'm not letting you off the hook. Uh, like that's your last thought. We're we're going to come back with the do the opposite segment. So uh, be uh, be ready for that. All right. Stay tuned for our George Costanza Memorial Do the Opposite segment, where we discuss things we can do to get the hell out of crazy town. You don't have to just listen to the three of us blather on anymore. We've actually invited someone intelligent on the program to provide inspiration. Hey guys, we got a really pleasant email from a listener named L.B. Blackwell. Was that sent to the wrong inbox? (laughs) Maybe, maybe. Well, I don't know. This is what he says, okay? He says, A couple of months ago, I discovered the Crazy Town podcast and have been burning through the episodes. Not burning them, burning through them. Nice. Uh, He says, As a result of listening to the informative, insightful, and amusing show. Again, are you sure this is the right (laughs) inbox? (laughs) I have also recently started the Think Resilience course. That's another offering Ah. from, from Post Carbon Institute. 
He says, these two resources and the supplemental articles, videos, books have kicked up my interest and enthusiasm for taking more action in response to the crises we face. Wow. And uh, he kind of goes on to talk about the stuff they're doing in, in his family, like supporting the farmer's market, composting, growing food, generally localizing. And, and he really talks about uh, upping his game and in, in using the bicycle for transportation. Excellent. And, and he even, I think, praised you, Jason, for your cycle commuting. Well, I, I don't do that much anymore. I, I have to, I'm sorry to admit, a share is the great bicyclist now. In, in in the crazy town crew here. I'm probably the, the commuter, although yeah. not doing that that much with... Uh, but you were good at commuting. Yeah, yeah. The, the problem for me is my commute is literally four feet from right. the bed well, to the desk. Well, you could bike from... Right? Yeah. I could leave the bike and climb over it to get to <laughs> yeah. the desk. And right? I, I work on the farm here, so I don't have far to go. I, I did used to, when I worked in D.C., I used to bike 19 and a half miles each way that was huge. to and Wait, from. each way? Yeah. Yeah, it's like almost a forty mile ride every day. Wow, man! It that, was it was insane. Okay, well, yeah, you are insane. You get the you get the gold sticker or something. On anyway, that. we're digressing yeah. here. This is not about us. This is about thanking LB for writing in, and please, uh, everyone else who's listening, do the same. If if you feel like it, uh, send us email, and especially go on your favorite podcast app and rate and review us so that others can find out about the show. Yeah, Thanks it really helps. I appreciate it. Thanks, LB. decision I've ever made in my entire life has been wrong. <laughs> my life is the complete opposite of everything I want it to be. If every instinct you have is wrong, then the opposite would have to be right. <laughs> so before the break, Asher, you were talking about questioning the myth of progress. And here in the do the opposite, we try to figure out how we might actually tackle that. And when I started thinking about it, it reminded me of that favorite childhood board game. You guys ever play Shoots and Ladders? Oh, I still oh, yeah. do, yeah. Um, still do. <laughs> <laughs> Jason loves games where you spin something and move a piece. It's so <laughs> easy. After a year of, of, of yeah. being locked in his house because of a pandemic, right. he's like run yeah, out of other... Yeah, I regressed. Well, what I remember about <laughs> Shoots and Ladders, it's this dumb game where if you, if you land on a space with a ladder, you, you go up the board towards the finish line. Yeah. And if you land on a space with a chute, which uh, you never use that word, it should be slides, it should be ladders and slides, you yeah. slide back down to closer to the beginning. And so it's really this idea of the ladder as as progress. And if you get to like the right one, you always win the game. Yeah, There's like this huge well, yeah, ladder. There's one of them, yeah. yeah. Gigantic. Yeah. There's also a huge slide at yeah. the end that takes you all the way to the bottom. Right, right. Well, if you think about the shoots or the slides, it's like that's the original conception that humanity is on this fall from grace. And the latter is kind of like the current conception that humanity is on this ascendancy of progress. And the point <laughs> so here- you, you've taken all of like human history and its conception of, and you've narrowed it down, you've Reduced it to shoots and ladders. That's right. That's this is what I do. No, with- he didn't do this. There's a backstory to the or the origin story of this game. Like you guys know the backstory of Monopoly, right? It yeah. was like yeah. a, a critique of capitalism, yes. right? 
So I think that the originator of Shoots and Ladders was like talking about the myth of progress. Right, right. That's, <laughs> yeah. that's probably that's true. Yeah, yeah. I, I think I'm uh, <laughs> some kind of genius analyst for figuring this out, but that was actually the intention. Right, of the exactly. <laughs> you were the first person to figure it out. Somewhere, yes. this this uh, person who created this game is like clapping. Like, finally, finally. Well, William P. Genius. Shoots and Ladders, the inventor of the game, uh, is has, clapping in his coffin right yeah, now. He's got one convert. <laughs> Or maybe three. I think. Uh, yeah. I think you guys are buying this metaphor. Uh. But so, th- really, the idea is that it's not a shoot and it's not a ladder, right? Right. It, uh, instead, it goes back to what we've talked about before: the adaptive cycle. Yes, yeah, systems yeah. thinking, and it's a cycle. People are probably tired of us talking about the adaptive <laughs> cycle, but hey, look, hey, you we're know. not. Woo-hoo. <laughs> um, actually, you know, we're talking about sort of you know old stories. Plato apparently argued that wait plato or that's plato? a great i love i have plato too <laughs> did i sound like i said plato <laughs> you know, if you leave it out it dries and you can but don't you love squishing it through those little plastic <laughs> yeah. toys and the you can make like spaghetti noodles out of plato. it plato uh, excuse me for not enunciating properly plato you know he he actually talked about that humanity was on a circular path and I guess the cycle was twenty five thousand years. <laughs> okay. Pretty long cycle there. Buddy. That is that twenty five. How do you come up with that number? Right. Yeah. Pull, pull it out of his ass. Yeah, staring in a cave or something. I don't know. But in any case, yeah, the adaptive cycle. You know the the idea that maybe experience existence is not either a fall from grace or an ascendancy to whatever this utopia. It's a uh, it's a process. Yeah. Right? And I think, you know, that's what we've talked about is folks who are listeners, the folks like LB who wrote us, they, he's, they're sort of gearing up for this, this phase of the adaptive cycle where we actually go through this collapse or contraction of some kind and then have to reorganize to, to some new phase that, that maybe starts to improve things again, right? So that, that I think, is what we have to gear up for. And let, let's, let's just take a real quick moment to praise the style uh, of LB, which is to do something that's beneficial for your community, rather than to build the bunker and stock up with, the, right. with as much ammo and, and canned <laughs> yeah. food as you can. You know, like. Yeah. yeah. We need reality TV shows that follow guys like, like him, right. you know, not, not the bunker guy. Not, not quite as, uh, as compelling, I guess. Not, right. It's just kind of like the new optimists. It's, it's too compelling. <laughs> so, yeah. But if we're saying, here we are with the do the opposite. The do the opposite is don't buy into this myth of progress. Question the myth of progress. We're not saying, and, and, and we're saying, hey, it's more like an adaptive cycle and get ready for the, the collapse phase of that. We're not saying walk around thinking that everything's going to shit, you know, and nothing can progress. I mean, I think that there are things, that, there's a shift also that we can make and should make around what we define as progress. Yes. Because there are things within all this, right? Even this, this collapse reorganization phase we may be entering where there could be progress in certain areas. Yeah. Well, I mean, I mean part of what this sort of the, the, the hungry ghost, the maw of industrialization, where we are literally like, like the gap folks even admitted, we're chewing up the planet while we're all these, all these metrics are going up. Um, we're chewing up the planet. Yeah, <laughs> and, yeah. and so that's, that's, like, that's like entropy, you know, being just accelerated. And so I think well, we're converting from sort of the natural capital or the, you know, nature. I, don't, I hate that, you know, natural capital is not a great term, I don't think. But 
what's interesting about and converting into stuff that really does have this entropic life, our built environment, you know, it doesn't last forever. We're always repairing things and fixing yeah. things. I want to I want to pull back just a sec because yeah. I, I don't know how you know you're starting to speak the language of of ecologists. Yes. and there was a, a guy named Paul Wessels who wrote this book that I blasted through before this episode. It's called The Myth of Progress Toward a Sustainable Future. Mm-hmm. And he's talking about that concept of entropy and saying most of the things we're doing and counting as progress are actually serving to increase entropy, which is right. essentially disorder, scatteredness. So like you can think about it, if you do industrial farming, you are plopping down this monoculture and you end up with uh, degraded soils and, right. and water pollution, in- entropy writ large. Yes. And that... And that- one of the things that I think about is like if we were to see other metrics, let's say we let's say there's other metrics that we call we call the new progress, right? right. <laughs> and they would be things like, oh, our soils are healthier. Like we can measure that. We can measure soil health, infiltration and organic matter and nutrient cycling. Or, oh, the wildlife populations, like the the number of songbirds is on the increase. Oh, you know, we've got actually better uh coverage of wetlands finally. These are all things that actually then are decreasing entropy because what what living systems do is they they actually build structure they create right. they decrease entropy in a sense through the work uh, they do as living ecological systems right and I think that's that's what I want to see in many ways as the new definition of and, progress and it's not just in a a natural non human ecosystem you can model that yeah. in human ecosystems. So we can do things like, yes, reforestation, but we can also do things like setting up our agricultural landscapes in ways that build right. structure, increase complexity and diversity, rather than always breaking that down. Right. For some reason, it makes me think of this great book that, that Bill McKibben wrote called Deep Economy. Mm-hmm. And in it, he talks about how the conditions that we're in what we define as as progress or benefit to people is very different. So I remember he had this example, and I'm probably butchering what it was, but he was just saying like in a quote-unquote developing country, like China, let's say, having a, a meal of protein, animal protein or whatever, is real significant progress for people. Mm-hmm. Something that like being able to eat chicken, right. you know, They've been deficient, makes yeah. a it makes an enormous difference for them. Having yet another relationship, it may not be as significant for them in their life. Mm. Whereas for us, eating yet another meal, right. you know, with with a dead animal in it, right. it doesn't actually help us. It might actually hurt us. Whereas making a meaningful connection and having, having a meaningful a relationship, <laughs> yeah. Makes an enormous difference. Yeah, you're for us. you're actually describing the law of diminishing returns quite right. quite nicely here. Right. But so I think I think there are a couple of things here in, in terms of what what we do with this this idea of the myth of progress. One is I do think that we need to have other stories. Mm-hmm. Right. I think stories are compelling. I think we're we're lost in this story. We need to have an alternative story. And maybe that story is that life is cycles. You know. Yeah. But I I also think that there is something. Com- you know, that we find particularly compelling to have ways of measuring. Right. It is something that we all have an itch for, in a sense. Do you know what I mean? To see how we're doing. So it's okay to say, I am, 
I've got these goals in my mind and I'm working towards them. It's just maybe we should shift what those are a little right. We could do both of those things. You know? I don't know. that You're reminding me. I'm getting pretty itchy to go check my stock portfolio. So I, <laughs> I got to go turn on the ticker and uh, see, see where my uh, Blue Origin Space Penis <laughs> stock is. <laughs> Good uh, luck with that, buddy. I was not successful with this one. Maybe for our listeners, we'll be better off. <laughs> sell, sell, sell. Tyson Yunkaporta is an academic, an arts critic, and a researcher who belongs to the Apalach clan in far north Queensland, Australia. He carves traditional tools and weapons and also works as a senior lecturer in indigenous knowledges at Deakin University in Melbourne. I so enjoyed reading his book, Sand Talk, How Indigenous Thinking Can Save the World. Tyson, welcome to Crazy Town. How you doing? Ah, Crazy Town, I think I think that's where I live. Must be in the same place. <laughs> well, good. Uh, maybe maybe you'll feel right at home here then. <laughs> Jason, Asher, and I have been discussing the myth of progress and how belief in it keeps painting humanity deeper and deeper into an unsustainable corner. In your book, Sand Talk, you point out something crucial about the myth of progress. It doesn't really work unless you also believe in the myth of primitivism. Mm. Could you describe the myth of primitivism and why it's so damaging to believe in these two related myths? Yeah, well, I guess it's just the latest permutation of, but I guess most civilizations, uh, you know, over the last few thousand years since the civilization experiment first started, you start out by controlling the narrative of the past in order to show that uh, the present is better. So no matter how miserable, you know, your people are, you can still keep forcing them to work towards a future which apparently is going to get better because of that, you know, that line on the graph. <laughs> it's like, oh, you think things are bad now. I tell you, they were worse before. It was terrible. But look, it's getting so much better. And this is the response always. Um you know, when people talk about all the terrible things going on in the world, the powerful tend to say, what are you talking about? It's uh, nobody has ever lived for longer or better lives, you know, rising tide, lifting all boats. And, uh, you know, things have never been better for human beings. So you should stop complaining or uh, or we will go away kind of thing, you know. <laughs> and, yeah, and, and the idea is like, oh, if you can just keep working, Keep working for a bit longer. Ah, oh, you follow that lineup, that future's going to be amazing. We're all going to have robot slaves and flying <laughs> cars. It's going to be deadly. You can upload your consciousness to the cosmos, and, and it's going to be fantastic. I mean, that, that's pretty much always been the way that you get, um, you know, large populations under control. And so, yeah, that's it's just a really good mechanism that's sort of built into the DNA of civilizations. Because you need that, you need you need to be be able to harness um, the power of human beings. You need to harness them as an energy system and as a a source of creativity in order to um, kick the can down the road for as long as you can with your civilization before it inevitably collapses, which usually takes about five hundred to a thousand years. So that's basically it. So your myth of uh, myth of progress, you know, the idea that um, 
you know, things, you know, it's Moore's law with the technology, et cetera. Things are, you know, keep going to keep exponentially improving. And, um, you know, it's, it's sort of tied up with sort of unnuanced versions of, a, of evolutionary theory of this idea that there's an arrow of progress in evolution somehow, which is not, I mean, you know, no biologist will tell you that, that, that nature just keeps perfecting itself more and more all the time. It's, it doesn't really work like that. It just, it just elaborates and shifts and changes and keeps adapting to um, changing circumstances, you know, but we managed to harness that and put it on a line and we managed to put, you know, I mean, you look at those, uh, all the evolutionary models from, you know, this dark ape to a sort of gradually lighter and, and, and more upright human being until you arrive at the pinnacle of human evolution, which is the Nordic male, um, you know, in all the posters, <laughs> it's still the image that we all have, um, you know, oh, in the great chain of being. I remember seeing great chain of being posters in the classroom when I was a kid. I remember, um, you know, posters and, and pages in textbooks when I went to school of, you know, the four races of man and you know one particular one at the top and and you know and a sort of an explanation of how these developing nations are just they haven't caught up with uh the more highly developed species of human beings yet and you know but it's the brotherhood of man and we have to help these people (laughs) and you sort of swallow that and believe it when it's you know really just um you know this highly deficient economic system and culture that needs to go out to those places and diminish those people and, and steal all of their shit just to make their ridiculous, clunky progress function. Just, just, and, and barely function. <laughs> you know, these uh, institutions are just always on the verge of collapse. It's always on the verge of absolute disaster. You know, there's always a Bay yeah. of Pigs or a Cuban Missile Crisis or a bloody, you name it. Um, it's always right on the edge of, of <laughs> complete annihilation, but, um, you know, I guess some people find that exciting. <laughs> yeah. You know, you're talking about the myth of progress and sort of the, the perceived pinnacle of humanity. Mm. But, uh, one of the things in your book and others that I've been reading too, is how it seems we've really gotten the picture wrong about, uh, how people lived in hunter-gatherer and foraging societies and how healthy some of them really were. And, you know, and that's where that myth of primitivism, you get that Hobbesian, you know, life yeah. was short, nasty, brutish. Well, uh, there's a lot of evidence to oppose that. No, it wasn't. <laughs> life in many ways was amazing. Yeah. But then I mean, you got the other end of that uh, that pendulum swing too, which is also uh, kind of wrong and disingenuous. Once the, the progress sort of model has started to look a bit dodgy, you know, you've got a lot of those those ones that identify with the Nordic male at the peak of progress just trying to turn around and go back the other way and identify this perfect body from the past to inhabit this perfect supreme being that's, um, that's somehow been diminished and that, that, that they can reclaim that and then uh, take back their fatherland and <laughs> um, correct all of these silly postmodern mistakes of women driving cars and such, you know? <laughs> so, you know, it's, it's really weird. Look, and, and, and there's a reason why there's so much pseudoscience around it, so much weirdness. Look, there's, there's some truth in what you're saying, but there is so much noise and not a lot of signal, you know, yeah. the real signal is, is going to come from an aggregate of stories from, um, 
Indigenous people who, who carry the memories of, of, of living in this way, of living sustainably within a land base. And just the immense complexity of that, when it's not re- viewed through this reductive or weird anthropological lens or you know, all these weird metrics for measuring things, we are the most measured people on the planet because that is, um, that is, that is really high-value real estate, the paleo sort of uh, mystery. You know, what, uh, what, uh, what is the patterning of human behavior and how can, what metrics can we devise to measure that? What stories can we tell to the public to keep them where we need to keep them? But then also, you know, how can we measure that to leverage, you know, understandings about human behavior so that we can figure out what all this weird irrationality is and, and, um, and predict the behavior of mobs and the madness of crowds and the wisdom of crowds and, and counteract that so we don't get a bloody, um, an excess of democracy or something like that is kind of the motivation behind most of that. Also to build up theories in psychology, you know, game theory, you know, economics, you know, right across the board, most of the disciplines are grounded in um, really bad baseline data about Paleolithic human beings. And, and you do see a lot of stuff cited about Indigenous peoples, you know, still existing Indigenous peoples, but it's seldom current it seldom has current analysis or story from those communities as they are right now. So trying to show how it's natural, it's natural for human communities to want to scale up and to um, elaborate hierarchies and to take control and then to take over other lands around them and all this sort of stuff. And so, you know, you, you get citation after citation of different indigenous groups that have done this. And and so they're like, oh, well, you, you know, you you're saying that you, you know, have these small scale sustainable communities, but what about these people? And what about these people? What about this example and this example who, you know, did expansionism and the, the chief's clan took over and, and took away the power of all the other clans. And then they went out and bloody eclipsed all of the other places around and started an empire and all that sort of stuff. I mean, that's happened with uh, a group in New Guinea that's happened. I mean, the Mali empire in Africa was pretty much, the biggest empire ever. <laughs> but that's not a good example because Africa was doing civilization before anyone else. Wakanda yeah. was a real thing <laughs> in time out of memory, but there's not much uh, exploration of that, like the the stone cities in Zimbabwe and stuff like that. They just kind of, they don't do digs there. They just kind of go, mm, that just means there was probably white people here. Um <laughs> many tens of thousands of years ago, like, oh, just ignore that. But, you know, Africa was the cradle of civilization. They tried it. It failed. And, you know, they returned to pastoralism and, and um, hunter-gatherer ways of life and, and, you know, village life because it was unsustainable to do it the other way. So they've already been through that and learned the lesson and uh, the rest of the world hasn't yet. But anyway, so you've got this, uh, so just they, they always cite these examples, though, like the one in New Guinea and all that sort of stuff. And then you, you sort of go, well, when, when did this happen exactly? And they all, they all happen around like the 1800s or the 1900s. And, you're, right. you know, they, they talk about the, you know, just the marauding Native American tribes and stuff like that. And uh, when, when was that happening again? Ah, uh, 1800s, 1900s. Yeah, right, after, uh, right after the colonizers came in. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, all right, all right. And so, yeah, exactly. They're not making the connection of, okay, so what else was going on in the... And there, you know, if you land, 
you know, on, on an island of New Guinea that has the richest linguistic and cultural d- density on the planet of any place. So obviously hasn't had imperialism because there's more, there are more languages in New Guinea than anywhere else. You know, so obviously if they'd ever exper- experimented with imperialism, you'd, you just have one or two languages on that place, not like thousands. <laughs> so you land on that shore and you just take over a massive swath of country for your little colony for your launching point to piss off with your safari hats and bloody high socks and bloody go and you know measure people and try and figure out what the primitives are like and you go oh oh these ones over here are eating each other oh they they must have been like for thousands of years just eating each other (laughs) yeah they're, they're killing each other over there there's a big war and it's like well you kind of displaced half a dozen tribes when you landed and killed a bunch of them and now they've had to flee into the interior and try and find somewhere else to stay so yeah there's some conflicts going on you know and that all those refugees are pretty hungry and <laughs> they're probably going to have to have a bit of long pig if you know what i mean so it's just it's like the the complete intrusion of the active observation of uh, paleolithic cultures has always rendered all of that data completely invalid what we do have is our indigenous peoples and and the stories that's often dismissed as mythology and all that sort of stuff. Uh, but there is some really solid law in those stories and a lot of really accurate data that's um that's worth looking at. And then there's there's just um there's just good thinking you can do, like looking at the linguistic density and diversity in New Guinea. It doesn't take much to backwards map reverse engineer that and see that there's certainly been a system that's prevented upscaling of powerful groups in that place for a very, very, very long time. And that system of of governance is probably worth looking into. It's yeah. probably worth a look because, you know, that's probably what's going to save the uh, world if you wanted to save it, if you're interested yeah. in that at all, you know. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I was glad to hear you bring up Story is something that is a thread running throughout Sand Talk and uh, clearly means a lot to you. I I often think of myths as uh, particularly sticky stories. Mm. So, uh, you know, they're the, they're the stories that tend to stay with us and get repeated. Mm. And one of the things in Sand Talk that you introduce is the concept of story mind. And I found that kind of fascinating. You you call story mind a way of thinking that encourages dialogue about history from different perspectives mm. and that takes advantage of the raw learning power of narrative. Uh, I was hoping you could explain the concept of story mind in a little more depth and then mm. maybe even provide an idea how someone like me or, or or hopefully someone a little more with it than me could actually cultivate story mind. Yeah, it, it's funny like in my community, the way we use the word story is different. I didn't mention this in the book, but it's different from the way everybody else uses the word story. You know, it's not just a narrative. It's not limited to that. Story is about any knowledge that's communicated uh, in a way that's to improve relationships or forge new relationships mm-hmm. or whatever, or increase relatedness in a way that that's committing knowledge to long-term memory, you know, knowledge or relationships to long-term memory. And that, that's pretty much, um, yeah, so, so that's a lot of things. But really, yeah. sto- story, it's, it's the only way to, safe way to store data long-term. 
can't keep it in objects and uh, technologies like material technologies because those things don't last. You know, your floppy disks uh, don't work anymore, for example, and <laughs> all the hard drives and everything else you're storing on. How's your CDs going? Your DVD. <laughs> right. Yeah, you know. You, right. It all. Uh, it all goes away, doesn't yeah, it? Yeah. You know what I mean. It's um. That all goes. So you want. You want a song to be remembered. You know. You're not. You're not storing that on a on a bloody server. You know, Spotify is not a safe repository for. You know your musical culture. Um, that won't last. You know, companies fall. <laughs> That's just in the short term. You know, platforms disappear. You know, um, I don't know, somebody does something terrible there and so the whole thing has to be cancelled or whatever. You know, rare earth metals are called rare for a reason. They're not going to last forever. And, um, you know, these devices won't be around forever. What will be around is, is, is what you pass through your relationships intergenerationally, you know, and that's really important. Uh, the, these are the things that last and you can store knowledge over deep time with that. So, yeah. You know, I was talking the other day uh, to someone about, you know, a lot of the the data that we still have in stories about species of megafauna that are long extinct, like, you know, tens of thousands of years ago died out. And, you know, while there's nothing in the, no remains of those animals that would tell, beyond bones, there's no remains that would tell people what color they were, what their habits were, what sounds they made. And we still have those sounds. Mm-hmm. Like we have the sounds that extinct megafauna made in our stories, like the old people can make them sounds, you know, we have, um, yeah, that's fascinating. You know what I mean? Oh. So, so it's, we have like oral histories kind of is this fossil record that, um, that it's kind of more 3d there's color in it. There's sound, there's smell, there's, you know, so the memory yeah. like that, that's the only way. And so, I mean, I think I'd rather see that than if there was a permanent way to have YouTube videos that would last for a million years, I think I'd still prefer to have it this way. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I, I can, uh, I can certainly agree with you. I can't even count the number of YouTube videos I've seen and forgotten Mm. in, you know, whatever the last decade or so. Mm. Another practice that you describe in the book is that of of using your mind and your hands to create uh, functional and and artistic objects. Mm. Um, For one example, you described a pair of wooden clubs or or law sticks that you Mm. made, and I'm not going to attempt the indigenous pronunciation. Maybe you could share that uh, with me. But I was wondering if you could just talk more about that practice of of creating things and what it's meant to you. Uh, Yeah, it's the thing that... um it's just the thing that sort of keeps me anchored or has kept me anchored. You know, no matter what else is going on, you can still come back to that. And that's something you're sitting in in deep time that's going right back and right forward. And there's no time. It's a kind of timelessness while you're doing it. And, you know, you're able to tap into that, um, that sort of bigger mind that's in all your relationships, but also all your ancestors, you know, everything you're just sort of there and sitting in all that knowledge and then you're choosing like a narrative pathway through that knowledge and that's what gets encoded into the thing so i'm working on a chapter for the next book and it's a it's about uh leadership and governance and but focusing on what not to do (laughs) (laughs) 
you know, basically setting up what, what governance looks like, you know, in a sustainable, uh, deep time, long lived society. And then sort of looking at, you know, and, and from the micro to the macro, so in small teams, but then larger social organization as well. Um, so at every point in the scale, and the secret is that it fractalizes up from the smallest unit. The same pattern continues until right into continental common law, you know. But I'm, I'm also looking at like, I'm just setting it up like that, but then looking at the mistakes that people make in teams now and in organizations and in governance, you know, in the kind of individualized cultures. So the way I'm doing that and the thing I'm making for that is um, weirdly I'm, I'm doing it the wrong way to, in order to explore and encode this idea of what not to do. So I'm making a dugout canoe, which is a big team, whole family or whole community effort. It's something that, mm -hmm. you know, dozens and dozens and dozens of people all work on at once over a few days uh, to create this ocean-going canoe. Uh, instead, I've, I've spent like the last two years trying to make one just on my own and just chipping away at it with the axe. Yes. <laughs> and it's um and it's the wrong way, and everything about it is wrong. But there's knowledge in that. There's knowledge in that because I like I firmly believe that we need to have cautionary tales now that are being handed down into the future. So mm -hmm. the idea of encoding a cautionary tale in an object, it's like, well, you know, if it's about doing the wrong thing, then maybe that needs to come into my process for crafting that. Yeah, well, I, I do appreciate that. I appreciate, too, that idea of finding examples out there of, of how not to do things. I mean, mm -hmm. I, I, you know, as a as a parent, I could think back to things I didn't like growing up and, and then I can say, okay, I'm not going to do it that way with, with my kid or, mm. um, you know, there's, there's all kinds of ways to, to apply that lesson. Mm. So yeah. And, and the one you're talking about, like experiencing something, especially something that you decided to do a particular way and, yeah. and realizing the lesson out of that, mm. that's a really key way of learning too. Yeah, that's it. I want to thank you, Tyson Yunkaporta. You are the author of Sand Talk, How Indigenous Thinking Can Save the World. And I really appreciate you joining me here in Crazy Town and, and sharing some ideas. Thanks for listening to this episode of Crazy Town. Yeah, if by some miracle you actually got something out of it, Please take a minute and give us a positive rating or leave a review at your preferred podcast app. And thanks to all our listeners, supporters, and volunteers. And special thanks to our producer, Melody Travers. Well, we've been talking about progress today, and we've got a great sponsor that is helping to achieve progress in an area where you maybe wouldn't have expected it. Oh, what's that? Well, it's in the arena of wheels. You know, the the wheel is one of humanity's greatest inventions. Oh my god! Oh, yeah. yeah, starting I with mean, chariots and stuff, and the Flintstones. And and talk about progress, we've progressed incredibly. I mean, you think about yeah. wheels now, like tires. My my wheels on my car. They tell me they're PSI level. I can huh. see it on my oh, dashboard. Unbelievable. Yeah. yeah. And, 
And, uh, you know, yeah, you went from uh, a wheel made out of stone to one made out of, you know, wooden spokes to... Yeah, metal. Well, rubber. Uh, our sponsor today is taking wheels to the next level. Our sponsor, Square Wheels. Oh, Square Wheels. Oh, my gosh. Well, okay. Uh, I'm surprised, <laughs> but I want to... I can think of some well, advantages. You're surprised because... Every once in a while, a leap in evolution occurs. <laughs> yeah, you get to that next level. Right, right. Yeah. We were we were like so limited in our thinking about right. the possibilities of right. wheels. You were Round, stuck, you know? stuck in the myth of the circle, weren't you? Right, exactly, some kind of cycle or something. You know how much easier it would be to park on like the streets of San Francisco with square wheels? <laughs> oh, it's, it's you don't even need a parking brake. Yeah. yeah. Screw the parking brake. Just get rid That's of that great. component. Talk of the about car. talk about ability to corner. Square wheels. Yeah. What a different ride it would be. Thank you, Square Wheels, for your sponsorship. Crazy town. Da, 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 da. Crazy town.